So for tonight, uh, as I said last week, it's actually going to take us a couple weeks before we actually get into any attributes of God. And that's because there's some important foundations we need to lay. And uh, there's two really important foundations that need to be laid. And it doesn't really matter which order we do it in because they, they, they interact with each other. But the first one is, not, is whether or not God even exists. If, if God doesn't exist, then there are no attributes of God to talk about. and We're kind of wasting our time. So that's what we're going to do next week. Next week, we're going to look at some of the classical arguments for how we know that God exists. But then another important foundation that can be laid in order to talk about the attributes of God is to talk about how is it possible to even know God, right? If there is a God and he has attributes is one thing, but whether we have access to that is a whole different thing. If, if God has hidden himself from us, or if we're just, because we're finite creatures, we don't have the capacity to know him, then again, we couldn't do a stu- series like the attributes of God. And so we're going to do that one today. We'll do his existence next week. But this week we want to look at how do we as finite creatures have the capacity to know what God is like? How could we possibly have the audacity? I, I, I hear a lot when atheists and debate Christians, and it's a really popular argument for atheists to call Christians arrogant because we dare to say, I know who God is. I know what he's like. I know what he wants. And they'll often say, like, how how do these people think they know the mind of God? Isn't that kind of arrogant, you know, to think you know God and you know what he wants, you know what he would do. And so how is that possible? Like, how is it that just this finite little creature in Roswell can claim to know who God is and what he's like and what he thinks? And so that's kind of what we want to cover today. How do we have intellectual access to what God is like? In other words, what we're studying is the issue of epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do you know what you know is epistemology? And more specifically, we're asked, we're, we want to answer this question, how do we know God? How is it that we can even claim to know who God is? And we believe as Christians that we have two ways to access God. We have two means by which we can come to know God. And these are called natural revelation and supernatural revelation. So there are two access, two points of access we have to God, natural revelation and supernatural revelation. So we, I want us to start with supernatural revelation. Supernatural revelation is also known as supernatural theology, same thing. It's also called special revelation. And this is an important term, uh, special revelation. So we have access to God through special revelation. Special revelation is revelation that is both revealed and it transcends reason. But we need to define that. Like, what does it mean for it to transcend reason? We're not saying that supernatural revelation... Well, let's start with the revealed. So what this means is that there are things we know about God, not because we've discovered them, but because God has given them to us. So with with special revelation... It's not something we found out or figured out. It's just something God straight up told us. God, in other words, there's a sense in which we would agree with the atheist. Well, we wouldn't agree with this, but logically you could say, I do not have the capacity to get to God, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have the capacity to get to me. It's like uh, if, if you were chained to a wall, you wouldn't be able to touch your nose, but that doesn't mean the jailer can't touch your nose, right? So this is information not that we figured out or that we learned. It's something God broke into our world and communicated to us. He has spoken to us. It's revealed. 
And the reason we say it transcends reason is, again, it's not saying that it's unreasonable, right? It's not saying it's contradictory and unreasonable. We're also not saying that it can't be understood. That would be a contradiction to say, I know God by not understanding it, right? Then you don't know him, you don't understand it. So I'm not saying it can't be, it's unreasonable or that it can't be understood, but basically similar to revealed, what we're saying is that this is not something your reason was capable of figuring out. Special revelation are things that God has told you, and if he didn't tell you, you would never, ever know. Your reason could not figure it out. Another important thing is when we say it transcends reason, we're not saying you don't use reason in special revelation, right? If God were to speak to you, you would still have to reason about what he said. If God wrote a book, you would have to be able to read it and make sense of it. So you still use reason in special revelation. You still utilize your reasoning faculties. But again, when we say it transcends reason, it means the only access you have to this information is available by God speaking to you. You cannot figure it out on your own. Yeah, that's what I just said. Uh, that was in the wrong slide, so ignore that. So the way when we talk about reason, or spe- forgive me, special revelation, uh, in, in the past, special revelation wa- was utilized in many different ways. God spoke through prophets. He spoke in dreams. He spoke in the, the, through the priesthood, in the Urim and the Thummim. Um, you know, he spoke, obviously, in Scripture. And then in the New Testament, he spoke through his son, Jesus, and then he spoke through apostles. So special revelation considered as a whole is, has a lot of different ways. But for us, what's important is what, how do we have access to God today, not how some people have had access to God in the past. So for us, special revelation is not prophecy or visions or dreams or thumb. The only special revelation we have today is Scripture. Scripture is the only access we have to God speaking to us. Now, uh, if this is how the... Oh, let me start to take a second back. But here's what I would like to do for the sake of time for us. Because Scripture... I, most of this, I'm assuming you guys kind of already agree with. So, theoretically, I would need to break into a huge, long class about how we know Scripture is the Word of God and why we believe this. Um, but since we're, I think, all on the same page here, I kind of want us to get to stuff that I think is new and more relevant for you. So I'm not going to try to prove that Scripture is the Word of God. We're just going to assume that for this class. But there is one thing about Scripture being special revelation uh, that's important for us. And I want to read it from the Westminster Confession. And it says this, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So one thing as we move forward with the class, the attributes of God, you need to keep this in mind. Scripture speaks to us in two ways. It speaks to us through deduction or through express commands. That's why sometimes like if I make a, a theological statement, I say, I, I think God, believe, God likes X. And someone says, well, would you give me a verse for that? Where does the Bible say that? That's a great question. Like, if someone's going to make a theological question, you need to hold them accountable to Scripture. So I do like the question. But part of why I don't like the question is because not a, not a lot of theology is necessarily an express verse. So we believe things about God that the Bible doesn't expressly say word for word, but we can deduce things from what the Scriptures say, and we would consider that as equally authoritative as what it expressly says. 
So, for example, like I could make a statement, uh, Jesus laughed. Jesus, when he, when he was on earth, he laughed. And you can say, well, where does the Bible say that? And it doesn't say that. There's no verse in the Bible that says Jesus laughed or Jesus had an expression of laughter. It doesn't say that. But what the Bible says about Jesus clearly over and over again is that he was fully human. He was a full human being. And it also has a passage that tells us that he wept. He would weep and cry. So if I know he's fully human and I know he's capable of weeping, I can deduce from that that he's also capable of laughter and that he did laugh because he's a, a full human. There's no way he went 33 years of his life and never once laughed, especially when we, you know, he's full of human emotions like grief and fear and crying and that stuff. So yeah, it's true the Bible doesn't expressly tell me that Jesus laughed, but I know he did, and I know the, it's the Bible that teaches me he did, even though there's not a verse for it. And so that's going to become really important because there's going to be times in the class when we speak about something about God, and you might say, well, give me the Bible verse for that. And I would say, I don't, I don't really have like a single verse for this, but I can give you like 20 verses where we deduce and put things together, and then we figure it out. Now, you say something? Well, that's what we just did with the study of the Eucharist. Yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah, absolutely. We just read, studied the scripture, picked a lot of it, and came to a conclusion. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So, in, so special revelation, supernatural revelation, uh, these, these things are all the same thing. And for us today, it means scripture. Scripture is out. So the, the first part of the answer, how do you have access to God? Because he spoke to me in Scripture. He has revealed himself to me in Scripture. And both in express statements and by deduction. So I want us to spend most of our time with the second means. The second way we can know God. The first way is supernatural revelation. But the second way is what we would call natural revelation. Or the other one was special revelation. This is what we call general revelation. And this essentially is nature, although we're going to qualify that term. Or, so general revelation, natural revelation, what is it? The most common name for this, like I said, all of these have a lot of different names, I don't know why, is natural theology. So we have access to God in the works of his hands. We can learn about God without ever possessing a Bible. God has revealed himself to all men through and in his creation. That's why I define it that way. God reveals himself to all men through creation. This is natural revelation that everyone has access to. The only way to have access to special revelation is to buy a Bible. But you have every single person on earth has access to God through creation. Uh, and so, oh man, I switched these slides at the last second and now I'm kind of upset with it. I'll just go with it. So here's, here's what this means. What, the way natural revelation works itself out often of times is through the use of philosophy. And there's this famous question that was, that was posed by a famous theologian, what, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? The New Testament setting happened in a bizarre setting because the Jews had been dispersed into the Greco-Roman world. I guess the point, when Oh yeah, Greco-Roman world. So we had this clash of worldview. We had pagan Greek philosophy and Jewish special revelation. And as the Jews and the Greeks got mixed up and as the New Testament apostles started going into the Greek world, people started to ask, what was, were the Jewish 
Were the apostles telling the Greeks, repent of all your philosophy? It's all terrible. It's all wicked. You need scripture. You don't need philosophy. Or like, what was the relationship between the Jewish scriptures and Greek philosophy? And so because of that, a lot of Christians get very, very clammy and uncomfortable when we start talking about philosophy. Because when you think of philosophy, you associate it with pagans, with Plato and Aristotle and all of these pagan men who were not Christians. But I would want to recommend to you that philosophy is actually part of creation. And it's, it can be very, very useful in f- learning about God. Here's why so many people are upset when we start talking positively about philosophy. Because the Bible only brings up the word philosophy one time, and it's in a negative way. It's, and it's here. Paul tells the Colossians, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So a lot of people say, uh, these Christian theologians will come up and talk about, I know this of God because of philosophy. And they'll say, no, no, no. Philosophy is what deceives you. Philosophy is what leads you astray. You need to be built up only in Christ, and you should only hold to the things that you were taught. But philosophy and empty deceit will take you away from what you are taught. I want to submit to you that this word is not being defined the way we generally use the word today. And so you shouldn't be too afraid of philosophy. So let's talk just about how do we define philosophy? The word technically means love of knowledge or love of wisdom. You philo, you know, like Philadelphia, brotherly love. This is the gr- Greek word for love. And I don't exactly know what the full word here is, but it, it applies to wisdom. It, it's actually, this, this part here is where we get our word science. Um, And so this is the love of science or the love of wisdom or the love of knowledge. But most people would agree that's that's a little too broad for defining philosophy because that basically would make everything philosophy. So most theologians have kind of taken a slightly more nuanced definition, which is philosophy is the attainment of truth by way of reason. So anytime you study the world and find something out that's true, you have become a philosopher. You're engaged in philosophy. So it's still a very broad term, and it simply means using your reason to find truth. Um, so, and so sometimes philosophy has, operates with two different definitions. There's a more, what they call proper and abstract, there's a more um, broad definition of philosophy, and it's just knowledge of human and divine. It, anytime you find knowledge, anytime you learn something, you've engaged in philosophy proper. And then sometimes philosophy is used for very specific schools of thought, a collection of various opinions. So for example, you've got Platonian philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, Epicurean philosophy. Uh, You've got all these different philosophical schools. So sometimes it's just this broad title for finding knowledge, and sometimes it's specifically referring to a collection of ideas. I would argue that the way philosophy was used in the Greek world, Colossians 2.8 condemns this. So the Christians were living in a world that was dominated by Greek philosophy. And you keep in mind, for us today, philosophy is kind of a, like a fringe academic enterprise, and they're kind of arrogant, and they use fancy words, and they 
overthink everything. Um, but if philosophers are not the ones like leading the country. You know, people looked at, to scientists or they looked to politicians or to religious leaders. But philosophers don't have like a dominant role in our society. But in the Greek world, this is not the case. In the Greek world, the philosophers were the most important people in the culture. They dominated the, whole, the, the politics, the culture. It was the philosophers. Philosophy was king. As a matter of fact, if you were to do like an in-depth study as to the development of the, of the Western world, of Western culture, you would find out that there are two things that contributed to this amazing Western culture that we live in and have created over time. And those two things are the Judeo-Christian worldview. The Bible has been unbelievably influential in developing the Western world. And the other thing is Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy helped create the Western world we live in. So the Greek philosophy was incredibly important. And it was dominated by these different schools, Plato, Aristotle, and Epicurus. And these people were basically battling out for whose philosophy is right and which philosophy should we use in, in government and stuff like that. And so if you were to say the word philosophy in, uh, in the Greek world, they, they would think of something like this. Which philosophy? Whose philosophy? And I think that's what Paul was condemning there. You had people, you had really, really smart Greek philosophers who were convincing Christians into heretical beliefs because they were pushing Arist Aristotelianism or Plato. And, and so he essentially, Colossians 2.8 is he's saying, don't let these Greek philosophers come in here and convince you to be Aristotelian rather than Christian or Platonic rather than Christian. And I think we also see this because he, decide, he, he qualifies philosophy and empty seat according to human tradition. And so I think what that implies is that there is a philosophy which is according to divine revelation. So not, I, I think that not all philosophy is human tradition, and he's only condemning a certain kind of philosophy. If you are a Platonian, then you are by definition following a human tradition. You're following Plato. If you're Aristotelian, then you're by definition following a human philosophy. So I, I do think it's a mistake to consider philosophy as automatically a pagan, misleading thing. Uh, so this is kind of small. Continuing what it is. So how we understand philosophy is that this would be part of nature. It's part of creation because it's primarily human reasoning. And your human reasoning is part of what God created. It's part of what he made. As a matter of fact, your human reasoning is the primary proof that you are made in the image of God. The fact that you can reason is what separates you from trees and birds and beasts and dirt. And so it would be a mistake to exclude human reasoning and metaphysical aspects from God's creation because God created those things. In other words, what I'm saying is that uh, when we hear the word nature, we automatically assume like biology, like the, the, the organic world. We, we think of mountains and stars and trees and rivers and oceans. But in Christian theology, the word nature literally encompasses anything that isn't God and God's speaking. God is outside of nature, creation, and God's revelation when he speaks to us is special revelation. That's outside of, uh, of, of nature. But everything else, so unless it's God orally speaking to you, either in dreams or scripture or it's God himself, falls into nature. Everything else, metaphysical truths like love and anger and fear, that's nature. So to, to say we can't do philosophy 
because, you know, a lot of pagans do it well, is essentially cutting a huge portion of God's natural world away from you, and it's God's natural world that reveals God to you. So you were, you were actually cutting yourself off from a means of finding and knowing God when you oppose all philosophy. Philosophy and theology actually have the same goal. They just use different methods of getting there. Philosophy uses reason, induction, and speculation, while theology uses authority. So when God reveals special revelation to us, we just believe it because it's God. Right? You, don't, you don't disagree with God. It's just pure authority. God said it. I believe it. End of story. Philosophy is still trying to figure out the truths of God, but it's just using a different means to get there. And this is general revelation, and this is special revelation. This is natural revelation, and this is special revelation. Now, if this means that theology and philosophy cannot contradict. So if someone states something that's a, a, a position of philosophy that the scriptures deny, then it needs to be rejected. And the reason they can't contradict is because God is their author. To say philosophy, true philosophy and scripture contradicts, is to say that nature and scripture contradict, and the Bible tells us God is the author of both. So you're actually saying God is a liar. So true philosophy and nature, or forgive me, true philosophy and scripture can't contradict. Now what people will say to that is, well, how can you say that? Because we agree that much of Aristotelian philosophy is not true. It, it does contradict the Bible. But we have to understand that there's a difference between philosophical theories and philosophical facts. Notice, we would all agree that Scripture is infallible. There's nothing untrue about Scripture. But we would also agree that people interpret it wrongly. I probably have something, <laughs> more than something, I probably have a lot of bad theology, even though I ground it in Scripture. So just because, some, just because some people have false interpretations of the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is untrue. Likewise, just because some people have misconceptions of philosophy doesn't mean true philosophy contradicts. So it's true that there are certain philosophical theories that contradict Scripture, and there are certain scriptural interpretations that contradict nature, but if they are both properly understood, they will never, ever, ever contradict. The real world cannot contradict God's word, because God wrote both of them. Now, uh, we'll, we'll discuss why at the, later on in the class, although I don't think we're going to get there. Um, we'll have to finish this next week. Uh, but philosophy is, though, still considered a servant to Scripture. We still, philosophy must yield to Scripture. And another thing is that philosophy, is, its, goal, its intention is not to prove theology or even produce it. So in other words, we don't, we don't believe things just because philosophy says it, or we don't just make things up from philosophy and have no care what the scriptures have to say about it. But rather, philosophy is a tool to help us understand philosophy. So it's not grounding, uh, it's not producing truth as much as it's helping us to find the truth. Like I, I like to use the analogy, imagine you had really bad eyesight and someone gave you a book and said, here's all the truth you need to know about, you know, here's a cookbook, yeah, you know, here's a great recipes. And you open it up and you can't really see it, so you put on some reading glasses and now you can see it just perfectly. In that case, the reading glasses did not give you any recipes. The reading glasses didn't teach you how to cook, but they were a tool to help you see the truth. And that's how we like to think of, of philosophy. God's actual truth is out there in the world, 
but it's, it's hard to see, it's hard to understand. Philosophy is a set of reasoning, a set of, lo- of logic that helps you find the truth there, but it's not itself making the truth. Does that, I don't know if that makes sense. Does that make sense? I love Francis Turton is one of my favorite Reformed theologians, and he talks about this relationship. When he uses the word faith, he means special revelation. He means God directly speaking to us. And then when he uses reason, that's basically how he defines philosophy. So, by the way, remember when I said that um, special revelation is not something you find out, you don't discover it, God just gives it to you? That's the, one of the differences between special revelation and general revelation. General revelation is something you discover, well, at least in part. And uh, so here he talks about why philosophy and scripture are so important. He says, reason is perfected by faith, and faith supposes reason upon which to found the mysteries of grace. So reason is perfected by faith. What he means by that is you might be misunderstanding the world. Like your reasoning might not be good. And when God reveals himself to you in scripture, scripture will help correct your understanding of the world. So scripture will improve your philosophy. But that does, the, but the funny thing and the, the beautiful poetic way he said it, at the same time though, even though scripture can correct your philosophy and improve your philosophy, you actually needed philosophy first before you could read scripture. That's why he says that, that faith supposes reason. If, if I gave you the Bible, but you were unable to read, what help would that be? If I gave you the Bible, but you had a, a brain injury and you were unable to reason, what help would that be? The Bible would be meaningless to you. So notice, you have to have functioning, capable reasoning processes in order for the Bible to even be of an advantage to you. And so that's why he says, faith supposes reason. God gives us special revelation because he has already made us as creatures able to comprehend the world. He made us reasonable creatures. If we were not reasonable creatures, special revelation wouldn't help us. So you have to use reason and philosophy in order to even make sense of the Bible. So the Bible, special revelation presupposes your reasonable faculties. And then they work in tandem as a tool. Like once, once you are able to read and understand the Bible, then the Bible might start teaching you about how bad some of your ideas have been. Some of your reasoning has been really broken. So the Bible will correct and purify your reasoning, but your reasoning was needed to even make sense of the Bible. So this is just one of the ways in which philosophy and scripture work with each other. Uh, so that's a, let, let me just maybe pause there. I would hope to get through this uh, we can at least get through the Bible source. But just before we move on, all I really wanted us to get from that is just understanding that philosophy is part of nature. And so when we talk about these Bible verses where God reveals himself in, in creation, I, I don't want you to think that that only includes mountains and trees and rivers. That includes your reasoning faculties, laws of logic, all of these things that God created in order to make this world intelligible, Right? So before we kind of move on to natural revelation broader, philosophy is just one part of natural revelation. And and the reason I spent so much time on that is because here's what happens. We're going to get into some of these attributes of God. And the deeper and deeper we go, it's going to get really weird. And the number one criticism, there are a lot of Christians who do not like attributes of God series. And they're skeptical of it because it utilizes so much philosophy. Like, there are going to be times where we go so, so deep. You're going to be thinking to yourself, okay, where does the Bible say any of this? Like, please give me a Bible verse that teaches this nonsense. And I might be willing to say, I don't think there is a Bible verse that teaches this. But I think God has revealed himself not just in Scripture. 
We can know God, and I'm going to try to prove that here in a minute. We can know God without our Bibles. You don't need a Bible to know God. That'll be qualified probably next week. So people get frustrated when Christians use philosophy, but we would argue that God has revealed himself in some ways through nature, through creation, through reasoning. So it's okay to use reasoning along with Scripture. Sometimes we use reasoning to, to fuller explain and unroll what the Bible has revealed. So, you know, if we get there, you can, you can ask me. Now, we're not saying that anything we'll teach here contradicts Scripture. It's, it'll all be consistent with Scripture. And I would even make the strong claim that everything we're going to talk about in the attributes of God can be maybe deduced from Scripture. But there's no doubt we're going to use a lot of philosophy, and that makes Christians really uncomfortable. Like, whoa, 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 I'm here for the Bible. I'm not here for, for the, you know, the opinions of men. Um, but what we would say is, no, like, God has revealed himself to us in creation, so we can use what he's revealed in creation to perfect what we think we're reading in Scripture. So any questions or concerns or thoughts just about philosophy specifically? We can take them. Well, if they come up any time throughout the class, then just bring it up. Like, this seems like a lot of philosophy to me, and we'll try to explain it. So I want to step out from that small aspect of natural revelation, go back to the more general point. So natural revelation, general revelation, is the way God has revealed himself to all men outside of Scripture. That's why it's not called special revelation. It's called general revelation. It's, it's, it's a limited amount. It's a limited amount of revelation, and it's available to every person. Special revelation is a huge amount revealed only to some people. General revelation is a little bit revealed to everyone. So obviously the most important thing is I want to show you that we have scriptural witnesses abundant to the idea that you can access some things about God without a Bible. So we're just going to kind of go through these. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, you maybe can use your phone or grab one from the seats. But I, would, I didn't put them on the screen. I just kind of wanted us to read these together. So let's go to Psalm chapter 19. Some of you may even have Psalm 19.1 memorized. It's very, very popular. Or you might have it memorized and not know it's memorized. Oh, what am I doing? Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4. I haven't really used this, this Bible in the Psalms very much because the pages are still sticking together. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day after day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech, nor, nor language, where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate that. So notice what this passage is saying. Every single person knows that God exists and that he is glorious. And how do they know? Because every single person has read a Bible? No. The heavens declare it. You go outside into the mountains at night, and you look up, and you know God. You know he is majestic and glorious and powerful. And you didn't need a Bible to know it. The heavens declared that. It's the heavens speaking. They proclaim his handiwork. So what else do you know just by going to the mountains? You know that this world is created. Everybody knows this world is created. We'll see in our main text that some people suppress that knowledge and they pretend like it's not true. But you cannot be a reasoning person in the world and think that this world is eternal or accidental. Everybody knows this world, the whole universe, is an act of art. An artist made this world. And he is glorious. Everybody knows that. You don't need a Bible to know that. 
And then it continues, day to day pours out speech. Every single day, the universe is speaking to you. And it's speaking, uh, night and night reveals knowledge. So listen how specific that's, revealing knowledge. So it's not like the universe is metaphorically declaring someone, but it's falling on deaf ears. We are gaining knowledge. It is a form of revelation. This is God revealing knowledge every single day in the things that have been made. And I even love my favorite part. Um, uh, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Again, God is revealing himself to creation and it's getting through. No one's missing it. Every, every single person has heard the metaphorical speech of creation. You can't ignore it. You can't miss it. Everyone knows. So again, people are getting absolute truth from God, and they don't need a Bible. They don't need a Bible to learn these things. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So again, is, is it just speaking to one nation or what? No. Every single person, every tribe, nation, and tongue sees and knows that there is one glorious God who created everything. So there are three truths about God you don't need a Bible to know according to the Bible. Right? Go ahead. These people thought the world was flat. Probably, I'd say some Columbus, not. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the Hebrews knew it was round. Those people, understood, they figured out the world wasn't flat by looking at the stars at night. Exactly. Which Genesis 1 tells us that's the purpose of the stars, to be used and, for and, navigation and the changing of seasons. And Columbus bet his whole life on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, and he wasn't the first. There were other people probably too, but... It is obvious. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Think about when you stand on top of a mountain and you look, you see the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even on a boat in the ocean, you, could, you see it tip off. Yeah. That's great, yeah. So let's go now to stay in Psalms, but go to 94. Psalm 94. Uh, 8 through 10. Psalm 94, 8 through 10. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. So notice I read through 11. Sorry about that. So this is amazing. The psalmist here is arguing from your makeup to to God. He's arguing from the least to the greatest. And what's his point? You have the ability to hear. And God created that ability to hear. So what does that tell us about God? He is omniscient. He hears everything. And he says the same thing with I. God made your eye. Where did he get that idea from? Because metaphorically, he sees all. So he's basically saying, how foolish is it to worship some kind of generic deity that can't hear all things, that can't see all things, you can learn from your own biological makeup and reason. So you take philosophy and biology together and you learn knowledge from God, namely that he sees all and he hears all. Again, you don't need a Bible for this. You just need to exist with a body and reasoning. And then he even goes on to say, he who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? So he's saying when calamity falls upon a nation, people inherently know this is judgment from God. So, we know, so look at all the things you learn, know of God without a Bible. You know, he sees all, he hears all, and he, is a, and he is just. And so he's willing to rebuke and chastise nations. 
And then he even says, he who teaches man knowledge of the Lord knows the thoughts of man, but they are a breath. So now we know another thing, that God knows all things. And this is not coming from revelation. This is coming from nature. Reason, biology, creation, teach me that God sees all things, knows all things, is just, and hears all things. So that's a lot of, those are four attributes of God that you don't need a Bible to know, right? Now, all of these are obviously are in Scripture, not only here, but we can, how many Bible verses do you think we could find that teach that God is just, that teach that God is omniscient? So none of this stuff, as I'm saying, it's not in Scripture, it's only in nature. I'm not saying that, it's always in both. But nonetheless, these are important truths about God that we have access to just through our reason and nature. Uh, another one is Acts 14, 14 through 8. Oh, and I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's right. Acts 14. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to the really important one, so we'll save that for next week. Um, but just know these are all softballs compared to the verse we're going to look at next week. Softballs. But it'll be good just to kind of wet the palate. Acts 14, what did I say, 14 through 18. So it reads, but when the apostles, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, oh, actually, let's, let's start earlier. I'm sorry, start at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, this is all special revelation up to this point. But now Paul is going to argue from natural revelation. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seeds, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So here's what's amazing. Paul tells them, he admits that these people have never had special revelation before. He says, in past seasons, God have, has let you wander your own way. And think about it. All of the prophets with the exception of Jonah. Jonah's the only exception. All of the prophets in the Old Testament were prophets sent to whom? Israel. None of the prophets but Jonah went into pagan nations and preached the gospel. The Ten Commandments were not given to pagans. It was given to the Jews. All of God's special revelation was only for his people Israel. He just let the pagan nations wander in darkness. But then Paul says, but, but let me clarify this. I'm not saying they had no revelation at all. They, did, they, had, they didn't have special revelation the way the Jews did. But God did not leave them completely blank without witness. So they knew God. God revealed himself to the pagan nations, just not 
nearly as much as he did with the Jews. And he goes on to explain, what, how did God speak to the pagan nations? He didn't speak through prophets or, or, or his son Jesus or anything. How did they learn of God? And what does he appeal to? Nature. There's something about the way nature is so unbroken, cyclical, advanced, and perfect. And Paul wanted them to see, like, clearly, this thing is in control by God. And so as God controls the world, he is showing himself to you. And so that's why Paul interprets whenever it rains, that's God. That's God blessing you. And whenever you have food and you're joyful, that's God blessing you. So what do we learn just through the cyclical seasons and through food and rain and all this stuff? What do we learn? We learn that God is providentially in control of all things. So when it rains on me, God's not going like, oh, shoot, I I actually let it rain in Roswell. I didn't mean to do that. Like, this is God giving us rain. So we learn that he is providential. He's in control of the seasons. And we learn that he's merciful. Because what is he doing with the seasons? He's filling our hearts with joy and food. He's being good to us. So you don't need a Bible to know that God is in control of the world and that God is merciful and good. Again, providence and mercy, more attributes of God. We've come up with like 10 attributes of God without, and according to the Bible verses, we didn't need the Bible verses to know these things. Right? This is all nature revealing God to us. Let's look at this last one, turn over a couple chapters, and then I'll end it there, give some time for discussion. Twenty-four through twenty-nine. I'd like to set up the, the background to this because this is really where Jerusalem meets Athens. So I love this chapter. We don't have time to read it, but let me just clarify. Paul went to Athens, but he was not supposed to do ministry. Not like God said not to, but God told him to go somewhere else. So he wasn't planning on doing ministry in Athens, but he had to stop there because he had companions who wanted to go with him, and they decided to make Athens their meeting place. So Paul goes to Athens just to meet up with his friends and keep going. But while Paul's in the city, he notices all of the idolatry. He sees all of the statues, all of the honoring and the temples, and the text tells us it grieved his heart. And he just said, I can't, I can't say nothing. So he goes around for a few, and he starts preaching and preaching and preaching. And he makes such a nuisance that he's called to what's called Mars Hill. And in Mars Hill is what we call the Areopagus. And let me tell you what the Areopagus was. It was this huge, beautiful coliseum on the top of a mountain. And this coliseum is where the Greek philosophers met to debate. So the Platonians, the Aristotelians, and the Epicureans, like literally the smartest men in the world and their colleagues would meet at Mars Hills and they would debate philosophical questions and they would basically vie for power. Paul gets so popular that people say, we need the philosophers to shut this guy down. So they send him to the Areopagus. So Paul is literally standing in front of the, from a worldly perspective, the most brilliant men on, in the earth. And he goes to preach to them. And so here's what Paul says. Not the whole thing, but just the end of his preach to the, to the Greek philosophers. He says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. So we can stop there, even though the rest of it is really good. So notice what Paul does. In verse 28, your Bible should have an indentation. And the reason it has that is because Paul is quoting a Greek philosopher. So Paul is admitting the Greeks got things right. It was the Greek philosophers who determined we are all created by God, that in him we live and move and have our being. So the Greeks figured this out on their own, without a Bible. They figured out that we are completely dependent upon God for our existence. And then he, then he quotes from the Greek poets, for we are indeed his offspring. So he takes the poets and the philosophers and he says, here's something you figured out on your own and it's true. And then he argues from their reasoning and he takes it a step further. He says, so since you guys figured out through nature and reason that we are completely dependent upon God, that he is our creator and that he exists outside of time, you should deduce from that that it's silly to try to put him into a temple. Right? Why would you think God dwells in a temple and he dwells in statues and you can only contact him through statues when you already know that he is outside of time, outside of space, and everything is dependent upon him? So they learned something without a Bible, without a prophet, without an apostle, and it was true. And then Paul took that reasoning and deduced more truth from it. So again, don't be too quick to completely discount all philosophy because Paul learned from it and put it in the Bible. He does this in the book of Titus as well when he's talking, he calls Titus to be pastor of Crete and he tells Titus this famous phrase, Cretans are all gluttons and liars and, and that he's quoting from a Greek poet and this, this Greek poet was from Crete and so Paul was very familiar with Greek literature, he was familiar with philosophical arguments and he was happy to say, these are things you're right about, you have figured some things out. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the big controversies in the Christian world is how often Christians want to basically make um, Plato and Aristotle like Christians through the back door. And even some of the reformers said, I know these guys didn't know Jesus, but I still think they were saved. And like Turretin brings it up in his institutes, and Turretin does a good job of saying, don't count this among all the reformers. These guys are wrong. We don't believe this. You can't be saved without Christ. But nonetheless, the reason these men were doing that is because the more you study of Aristotelian philosophy and Platonic philosophy, and remember, these guys existed before Jesus. They're older than Jesus you would be amazed at how biblical they sound. Now, they have a lot of garbage. They have a lot of pagan garbage and a lot of false beliefs, so I'm not saying, but there are Christians and Catholics who have tried to claim these men are in heaven because they learned so much about God. And again, they did this without Bibles, without Jesus. So, and then next week, we'll look at one more text, but I guess to summarize tonight, what we want to understand is that, yes, of course, we access God through scripture. We access him through his word, but we can also learn about God through nature through reasoning, through what he has made, through philosophy. So those are our two primary ways that we can boldly claim, I know God, and it's not arrogant to say I know God, because he has spoke to us in his word, and he has spoke to us in creation. So we're going to stop there, and then we'll finish the, the next half of this uh, next week.